Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. If you're a brand, you need to understand what behavior you want to change in that consumer interaction. And if you can change a behavior, you can drive a brand into the stratosphere. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. I'm excited today to welcome to Good Company a longtime and wonderful friend, Howard Draft. Let me take a moment, Howard, and give our audience a little bit of history. When we met in 1995, you had taken Draft Direct to a level that really kind of changed the world of direct marketing. And later in that journey, actually joined Draft with one of the vaunted names in advertising, Footcone and Belding, to create Draft FCB, which was not only one of the best agency configurations in the history of our industry, but really brought together the direct marketing capability that you so well understood with, you know, an illustrious history of foot cone belding and really was a precursor to what we talk about today. And it's really bringing together performance marketing, which in earlier days was called direct marketing and brand marketing. And, you know, I guess if I look at it, Draft FCB might have been one of the first places you brought that together or the industry brought it together. So that's my long-winded introduction. Welcome, Howard. Thank you for having me. What I'd love to do is just kind of have you riff a bit on your background and the story of how you created Draft Direct originally and, you know, just your understanding of marketing from that perspective and why Draft Direct was something special and different in its time and even more so if it existed today, how special it would be. But give us a little history. I started my career in 1977. I was an assistant account executive at an agency called Stone and Adler. And Stone and Adler back then was really the competition against Wonderman. It was the Chicago-based leading direct marketing company. Believe it or not, back then in 1977, it was considered the second or third largest direct marketing agency with only 120 employees. But it had a brilliant man named Bob Stone. And it just was a great agency. You learned a lot. I was there in my 11th month, and a gentleman named Jim Cobbs, who was the general manager of that agency, asked me to come into his office. And, uh, and he goes, I'm starting an agency. Do you have any interest in coming with? So I looked at my watch, and I asked him what time we were leaving. That's how long it took me to make that decision. We left two weeks later, started an agency with about 13 people. Jim Cobbs was one of the gurus of direct marketing at the time. So even at that time from Jim and what I learned from Bob Stone and people like that, and over the years from great people like Lester Wonderman, was, you know, the principles of direct marketing. And within weeks of starting the agency, we had Michigan Bell, then it kept rolling Southern Bells. And before we knew it, I had 18 of the 24 Bell operating companies as clients of the agency early on in its creation. So now let's fast forward from 1978 to 1982. 1982, this gentleman named Don Zuckard comes to see us in Chicago, and he was the president of Ted Bates. Ted Bates was the third largest holding company in advertising in the world. 
And they realized they needed to have a direct marketing as part of their portfolio. So he comes to buy the agency. And after a few weeks of discussions with him, we realized that wasn't a good idea, a four-year-old agency. So we decided I would move to New York and start the New York office. I can remember Phil Doherty writing the story in the New York Times, how's a 27-year-old kid from Chicago going to be successful opening an office in New York? And within the first few months, I picked up the HBO account, Prudential Insurance, U.S. Navy, and all of a sudden, two months after I'm in New York, I'm almost as large as our Chicago office. So we stay, and I kept building out the New York office to be a very sizable direct marketing agency. And then in 1986, we decided to sell to Ted Bates, which at the time was also another pretty infamous story because Ted Bates was acquired by Saatchi and Saatchi back then. Saatchi was the seventh largest. Ted Bates was the third largest. And all of a sudden, Saatchi and Saatchi wanted to be the largest holding group in the world. And with the acquisition of Ted Bates, they got there. Well, what happened was all of the clients of Ted Bates realized that all of a sudden, all these executive VPs and presidents were now richer than the president of J&J, Warner Lambert, all these great brands realized- Because Howard, just to interrupt for a second, my recollection was at that moment, the guy who ran Ted Bates, Bob Jacoby was paid like close to $100 million, which back then was real money. $118 million okay. in 1986. Okay. The yeah. sale was $540 million, all cash. The Saatchi started at four fifty. dollars They kept going back and forth at a bar in New York on a cocktail napkin until it was 540 million all cash. So now most of the clients walk out and like 17 of the top 20 guys at the agency leave. And basically Saatchi and Saatchi bought the third largest agency with no clients weeks after having acquired it. So they brought in a gentleman named Robert Louis Dreyfus to run Saatchi and Saatchi because they were basically done at that point because having paid all cash, they didn't use stock they were basically what they call kaput. So Robert Louis Dreyfus shows up under 30 years of age at the time. I'm still running Draft Direct at the time. It was Cobbs and Draft, and it became Draft Advertising when Mr. Cobbs left. And then Dreyfus shows up. I fly to London. I meet Dreyfus. He realizes I have a good business that's still making a ton of money. None of my clients left from this. One caveat on the point before. When I sold my agency to Ted Bates, I took stock in Ted Bates. I didn't take cash. So I was three times in debt from what I had sold my company for. And when Bates was acquired, I was lucky enough to be a stockholder. So now I'm in London with Robert Louis Dreyfus smoking cigars. He's driving around in a Mini Cooper at the time. He's dating Kim Basinger. I'm a 30-year-old kid from Chicago going, wow, this is cool. So I'm hanging out and Dreyfus had handed me 17 companies that the Saatchis had bought. And Dreyfus says, you go figure them out. So I took my team and we went to look at all these companies and we either sold or gave back the 17 companies that Saatchi had acquired to other people. So during that period, I'm in going back and forth between New York and London and Dreyfus is having me continue to build out draft and expand the business globally. And then in 1995 comes along, which is nine years after the acquisition by Bates. And Dreyfus decides to buy Adidas. So when he goes to buy Adidas, I say to Robert, I said, I'd like to buy my company back. He goes, I have no interest in selling the company back. And the board has no interest in selling the company back. However, Michael and I being the salesmen that we are, eventually I convinced Robert that he should sell me the company back. 
In the meantime, he had offered me the job to become the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, replacing Ed Wax. You know, what I would work under Wax for a year, we'd merge draft in, and I would, over time, take over Saatchi. Well, as I explained to him, I've never met the Proctor client. I've never met the Toyota client. So I think that would be a really bad idea. So he gave me the company back. If I sold the company within two years, they would get a percentage of the sale. So the day it's announced, this gentleman named Phil Geyer and Gene Beard show up at my door. Now, I've owned it 24 hours. And Phil goes, we'd like to buy your company. You're the only independent global direct marketing agency in the world. I said, Phil, Gene. I've only owned it a few hours. I can't sell it to you. First of all, I believe in capital gains. I'm not going to do an ordinary income deal. So they go ahead and do a contract with me that closes 12 months to a day later. So 12 months to a day later, they had bought my company from multiple of what I had just bought it back from. So now I'm an employee of the Interpublic Group, working for Phil and Gene, having a wonderful time. And then they go through tough times. Maybe it's me. But uh, <laughs> they start to have some. No, time. I don't think so, Howard. I was I was there. It wasn't you. <laughs> but so then I'm sitting here with the wonderful people. I love working for Phil and Gene. They were great, great people. And then they started to have problems. And you had a number of other CEOs come in place until finally Michael Ross took it over and really did a wonderful job cleaning it up. So now we fast forward to the year 2005 from 1995. I had been there two years. Draft is in 37 countries, excuse the expression, making a ton of money, growing very quickly all over the world. And they had this agency, Footcone and Belding, that came in the merger. Footcone was bigger than me, you know, by the tune of a couple hundred million more in fees, but they didn't make as much money. So what they did was they decided that they would merge FCB in to draft, which was something that I believed in, going back to your point about performance marketing. I pounded on the table back then that the first agency that is media neutral against all disciplines will win. So I believe that any client should come to an agency for a media neutral solution. We should be business partners. We should understand their business model. We should work on an understanding of what it costs for them to acquire a customer, what the lifetime value of that customer is. And I don't want to care whether we're doing brand advertising branded direct advertising, promotion, digital, whatever it needs to be, the first agency where a client could come and have a media neutral solution where in one agency you had quality services across all platforms would win. Michael agreed with that strategy and he and Philippe came along and we did this wonderful merger. For our audience, Philippe Krakowski is the current CEO of Interpublic. And, you know, as Michael retired, Philippe stepped into that role. So now we do the merger and the funny next step in my career, which was probably the highlight in the low life of my career, Sam Walton dies. That wasn't the highlight of the low life, but they, for the first time, put out an RFP for an agency. We don't even have credentials. We don't even know what we stand for. We didn't even have a logo draft FCB at the time. We just had done it. But since we were the largest agencies in the world at the time, Walmart wanted us in the review. And as you all know, or some of you know, went from a 32 agency review down to six. We ended up winning it totally legitimately. But uh, a number of things happened at Walmart after the fact. And I went from winning the Walmart account to losing the Walmart account in about three months. Well, Howard, I, I do want to stop there for a moment because that was a tough moment. And I remember it well because, you know, along that journey, you and I, as I said, have stayed very close 
and I watched it and I applauded the success and I kind of gave you a shoulder and we shared shoulders to cry on in the aftermath of that success. From a career building perspective, from a character building perspective, to go from that high to that low in you know the space of a month or maybe even less. Talk about that moment for a moment, Howard, because what I want to do is bring that history to the fore and talk about Howard Draft in 2022. But talk about that moment from a you know, and, and it's easy to say this when you're not the person, but from a character building perspective and humility and, and all the things that come with that high and low in, in the same sentence almost. Well, let's put it in perspective. First of all, Michael, since we were such good friends, you'll remember five years ago, we were having lunch at Avenue with a woman who right. actually did the research and sat in all the review of Walmart. And right. she clearly stated, you guys clearly won the business based on your work, nine out of 10 votes. Remember right. she said one agency got one other vote. First of all, I love new business. So pitching an account was fun. We spent two and a half million dollars out of pocket shooting finished commercials. The line was life well spent, which when Walmart was trying to get more into broad based their clothes and other things versus just low prices. And the work was the best work I'd ever been involved in in my lifetime. At that time, we were competing against the best agencies in the world. And we were doing it kind of by gut, because again, we had just done the merger. So the creative people I was working with and my team were doing a pitch for the first time ever together. And the pitch lasted six months from beginning to end. When we wanted, I was in Shanghai doing other business and the phone rang in the middle of the night. And they said, you need to come back and now meet the president of Walmart, which I'd never met throughout the whole review. Came back, met him. I'm not sure we got along perfectly, but, you know, we weren't getting fired over that. But there were a number of other issues that came up, none of them illegal, none of them incorrect. But you have to imagine now I have all of my clients, Mondelez, Coors, Johnson & Johnson, the best clients in the world, asking me what happened of how I lost Walmart in a matter of a month or two. So first of all, dealing with the CEOs of 100 Fortune 500 companies was the hardest couple of weeks of my life. And all I could say to them, we didn't do anything that we hadn't done on your business and everything was completely legal, but we lost it. And there's nothing I can say about it because Walmart's asked us not to talk about the reasons. One of the great ironies, if you want to laugh about it right now, which sometimes I was over at Footcomb the other day in Chicago for some meetings just for fun. They got the Walmart account again. So think about the irony. And it ended up where it belonged in the first place because the work was brilliant and they're doing brilliant work today. But what was strange for me is, you know, obviously to be a CEO of an ad agency, you have to have a little bit of an ego. And I'm sure over the course of my early career in direct marketing, I had a pretty good ego because of the early success. But when we won Walmart, I felt like we had created the greatest agency in the world and nobody was gonna stop us. You know, front page of every publication around the world. And then all of a sudden, not a client wanted to talk to us. Clients wanted to know what we had done wrong. So you go from having done everything correctly to win the business to all of a sudden, you've done something wrong. And you can't tell them what you've actually done because it isn't anything you've really done. And uh, it's going from the ultimate high, you're a 12 on a scale of 10 down to a one. And you spend years you know, in grief. And then people are wondering, 
what happened. What happened was it was some bad luck on our part, but it was also an incredible experience because A, I learned a lot, and B, it made all of us at the agency tighter from it, but it sure isn't anything I'd ever wish upon anybody. I would never wish anybody to go through what I went through. No, of course not. But Howard, bring us to the fore. Bring us to now. Talk to us about Howard Draft 2022 and how you're taking this experience you had and your understanding of direct marketing, but as I say, performance marketing, with where you are today and really identifying the opportunities around this thing called the metaverse. With Visical, you've you know, kind of captured the zeitgeist of the moment with the metaverse and, and the idea of democratizing kind of access. Please give us a, a picture of the current state of affairs. Okay. First of all, you know, meta, you know, one of the things we skipped was my agency was an early investor in Facebook. Well, you know, let me do that one, Howard. When Facebook was founded and was getting some traction uh, to let the audience in on that story, because I was there kind of on the periphery, on the shoulder, if you will. They had 60 employees and 7 million users. Yep. And the deal that you orchestrated was for Interpublic to take a percentage interest in this fledgling company in social media. My understanding is that fledgling interest worked out to be somewhere around a $250 million success fee, if you will, maybe more. No, we invested uh, $2.5 million at a $440 million valuation. A few years later, it was moved from draft FCB up to Interpublic. Interpublic exited the shares as they wanted during whatever period they felt like selling shares. And I can assure you there was closer to a B on it. There you go. Well, a good investment nonetheless, but you were early in understanding social media and now you're early in, you know, at the forefront of meta and the metaverse. Yeah. My takeaway on it, Michael, is first of all, any business you get in today needs to solve a client's business problem. So when people are getting into a lot of this social media and metaverse discussion, I'm not into these one-offs. People are doing these one-off NFTs and promotions. To me, that's all like ridiculous. My view on meta and metaverse is that the technology that's going to be developed and is being developed today will allow the consumer for the first time to go from a web two environment to a web three environment where they will be more engaged than they ever were before. The technology that will exist will allow you to get into the advertising for the first time. You'll be the person in the environment as well as you will be able to take a classic web two site and turn it into a web three platform that will allow the consumer to really see and understand and feel and become a part of the behavioral understanding of a product. So I got back into this business about nine months ago with a bunch of 30-year-old brilliant people from the NFT gaming, as well as McKinsey World. And we built a small consultancy. And what we're doing right now is we're targeting a lot of luxury brands and we're showing them how not to be a one-off promotional type business. We want to be able to show how the future of marketing is going to involve the technology and the thesis that exists within 
what's being built in the metaverse. I'm a firm believer that the next couple years of marketing will change the way a consumer interacts with a brand. And what have we always been about? We've always been about how do we make a consumer interact with a brand in a new and exciting way? To me, the virtual reality, the augmented reality, the use of databases and the use of segmentation that will exist today and will exist into the future will allow a company and the consumer to have a much deeper consumer relationship, will be able to change behavior, measure behavior, and change behavior again. But these major fashion brands, my clubs, you saw when you go to Paris and you're dealing with your clients there, they're all excited as hell about being able to change the way a consumer interacts with a brand virtually as well as in retail. These brands are not going to walk away from retail. Remember, the whole thing is people thought, oh, direct marketing was going to eliminate retail. No. Virtual reality is going to enhance retail. Virtual reality is going to, again, be another source where consumers can have this deep relationship with a brand while at the same time either buying online or going to a store. Eventually, you'll probably be able to go into a high fashion brand. You have looked at the fashion show at home ahead of time. You will feel like you were at the fashion show in Paris. You'll walk into a little room at a famous boutique. There'll be a avatar of you. They will have ability to flip all the clothes that were in the fashion show onto you as an avatar. You'll be able to purchase those clothes in your exact size and colors, and they'll show up in the store a few months later. So it will enhance the experience. It will make it more real. And it will also help the brands eliminate making products that people never buy and eventually discount. So it's a tighter relationship. And you chose fashion and high-end fashion because it's an area you know. I'm just curious why the high-end side of it versus the you know popular priced, if you will. It's obviously the higher price brands. First of all, they have a stronger need. Second of all, the brands are going to be able to afford to give away the technology to their consumer to use the technology. For example, you'll have an, one of my favorite things. Eventually, a woman will know every piece of clothes that's in her closet. She'll be able to go to her iPad. They'll be tagged. They'll know what house they're in. She'll know when she wore them. You'll put a calendar app with it. And the calendar app will tell you what you wore out with it. Let's say my wife went out with your wife. She'll know the three outfits she wore the three times she went out with your wife. So technology will come together with fashion in such a way that the woman or the man will have so much information and be able to pick out his clothes ahead of time. You're going on a business trip. You'll go to your iPad. You'll say, here are the eight items I need to bring because I'm going to a cold weather place, a warm weather place. It's going to make the consumer experience better and easier. So I'm really excited about how data tech, I've always been a data geek. I love brands, but I love data. I remember back when 77, I'm doing spreadsheets on results. So in the future, data is going to drive everything, cost of a new consumer, lifetime value of a consumer. All of these things will be coming together in the Web3 world, but at the same time, driving enhanced retail experience and enhanced direct marketing or classic marketing, direct marketing. So, so Howard, you've come a long way and here you are at the cutting edge yet again. But with the experience and the history you've had, and it's one of the more interesting experiences in our industry. I mean, you've been doing this for, as you said, 40 years, and it's been, what, a 40 years across the industry, not only for you, but, you know, both local in Chicago, national out of New York and Chicago, and international where you were so comfortable. And yet some of the greatest direct marketing stories, and you and I have spent many years talking about one in particular with HBO 
you know, early on. And here we're at a point in time when brands really need to get that joke, if you will, of the difference between brand and performance, because so many brands, HBO is a great example. HBO is a brand that always was around getting subscribers. Then they kind of hit the numbers they needed in subscriber. And now they have to get subscribers in a different way for the streaming service. Is there any advice that you would kind of give to brand and media executives in this next five years, you know, based on your history and based on what you can see relative to where we're going? You've had the ability traditionally and historically to look around corners. If you're looking around the corner this time and you're speaking to an emerging media brand or media executive, is there any bit of advice you give them? The most important thing for a brand, if they want to do something from a breakthrough standpoint, you know, you can do some good advertising and you might move things tenths of a point. You might be able to improve the offer and improve things significantly more. You might be able to do a better media buy and all these things together, you can improve the business. If you really want to create a breakthrough, let's use HBO an example. When I showed up at HBO, they were a 24-hour movie network. In 1984, they started to do some original programming, concerts, boxing events, and that drove the business. So they started to change that. But the biggest impact that HBO had, in my humble opinion, was in 1986, when everybody realized we were all sitting around the room, this brilliant guy, John Billick, who was the head of marketing there. And, you know, everybody was saying, you know, at HBO, we don't have ratings. Now let's do some really great original programming. Let's put it on Sunday night. By owning Sunday night, they changed the behavior of America. And when you change behavior, you can go from medium growth, some nice growth, to geometric growth. So if you're a brand, you need to understand what behavior you want to change in that consumer interaction. And if you can change a behavior, you can drive a brand into the stratosphere. HBO is one of the best examples I've ever seen of changing a behavior by putting their original programming on Sunday night. It became a must place to go in America. You have to give HBO the credit to say, okay, yeah, we're going to program six other days a week, but I'm announcing every original programming on Sunday night. And all of us who were there saw the sales go up geometrically. So Howard, let me switch to a subject that's probably not as good but actually pretty good. You were an early investor and a board member of a company that has gone through, you know, a massive change of behavior wave, and then one that kind of didn't seem to sustain as behaviors moved back. And there's a whole host of reasons for it, I'm guessing, but Peloton. You know, I'm looking across to my gym I happen to be at home when I'm chatting with you and there's a Peloton and I was a very, very, very early adopter of spinning per se and then in-home spinning. And you were an early investor and a board member of a company that had a you know rocket and then came down to earth a bit. Is there any lesson that you're comfortable sharing of something like that that had such a rapid rise and you know, market cap that- That's a behavior again. No, no, but you, that's why I bring it up, not to talk about yeah. Peloton, but to talk about what you did at Peloton and the company did, and, you know, credit to John Foley and others, you changed people's behavior. The pandemic was an instigator, but you were already trying to change people's behavior to in-house, in-home exercise. Yeah. Now, Peloton, 
let's start with is one of the world's great brands. So what happened there was John came to me in the early days because I would think people think of me as a subscription expert. So he came to me to sit in my office in New York just as they were launching the company. And I must tell you, I was 100% wrong. So, you know, sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. Well, but Howard, let me let me just tell you, my mother used to say she may not always be right, but she's never wrong. So you can use that. You can use that. She may not always be right, but she's never wrong. Okay. well, in this case, my projections were so far off the mark. It's a joke. So John sits in my office and he goes through what he's building. And I say, oh, it's a beautiful model. Here's what I think is going to happen. You know, first year you'll get your subscribers. I wasn't talking about volume. I was talking about retention. And because this product has the best retention of any product I've just about seen in my life. It still has like a 91% retention level. It has incredible consumer scores. The consumers love the product. But he comes in my office and he goes, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, first year, you'll keep about 85% of your customers. Second year, you'll probably drop to about 68%, 65%. And you'll end up netting at about 55% retention rate after three years. I wasn't even close. I mean, they're in the 90s. So start with everybody loves that product. And John Foley was a genius in his team to build that product. Okay, so we're plugging along. We're spending a ton of money building the brand. This was an example where we built the brand and drove people to the website to buy the product. Some of the advertising was good. And as you know, some of the advertising wasn't so good. But when we drove people to the web before the pandemic, we were growing nicely. And we were going public in October of the year before the pandemic. And we got public and the business was doubling every year and it was a beautiful business. Come around March 14th, the pandemic hits, we couldn't make product fast enough. I mean, we were not prepared for the geometric growth. Okay, there's a behavior that took place because of the pandemic. People stopped going out, stopped going to gyms, and we were the only good product to get an exercise with. So we're sitting here trying to find factories, buy factories, ship bikes over on airplanes, the most ridiculous thing to try and keep up with consumer demand. And I think the biggest issue was they ordered a lot more inventory in the second year of the pandemic to the tune of billions. So that when the pandemic stopped, ordering went back to what I would consider a more normal level. But I do think the current management and team will with the changes they're making, find some good stabilization. And I think the brand will come back nicely over the next couple of years. You know how to make a good product? You make a good product, people want a good product. Yeah, no, And they make a good product. It's and, it's, well. and it's subscription. You know, they need to be selling more, in my opinion, of the experience of the instructors. You know, the hardware needs to go to second tier. First tier is the experience you get with the instructors. And if they keep pushing in that direction... I think they'll start to grow again. Remember, they're not really international. They're only in a couple of countries. So I think there's still great opportunity there. But that is a perfect example of behavioral change that worked. But again, it's a crisis in the world. But remember my funny thing I told you? I once told uh, Jeff Bukas that we got to get Murdoch. And on April 1st, we have to put all the CNN reporters on Fox and all the Fox reporters on CNN for the one day. I think that would have been the funnest day in the history of America. I think we should do that now. Howard Draft, you and I could talk forever as we do when we get the privilege to spend time. And I'm I'm thankful that happens frequently. I want to take a moment to just say thank you, Howard. You sharing your thinking and your experience is going to be very, very interesting for our listening audience. And, you know, I know that Visical, as you roll out this 
new strategy is going to, you know, garner great success. And it should, because there's no company that wouldn't benefit from having the thinking and the insights uh, that you have represented over a 40-year career. And I'm privileged that at least for almost 30 years of that career, I've been able to count you as a friend. So Howard Draft, it's a great pleasure. Michael, it's been great being your friend for 30 years, but what I love most when we get together is when we start gossiping about the business because the business to me is still the most exciting business in the world. Thank God for that. Howard Draft, thank thank you for having me. I'm Michael Kasson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Mm-hmm.